continuing with chapter 7, which is called Attending to the Deathless. So we come on now to a uh, particularly, uh, I think, useful and uh, significant area of reflection. The final issue to address in this chapter is the usage and meaning of the phrase merging with the deathless, quote-unquote. In Pali that is amatogada. There are numerous occasions where the Buddha uses such expressions as these five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, when maintained in being and developed, merge in the deathless, reach to the deathless and end in the deathless. That's Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's translation, and then Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the same passage is These five faculties, when developed and cultivated, have the deathless as their ground, the deathless as their destination, the deathless as their final goal. And then a passage from the, uh, the Book of the Tens in the, uh, the uh, Anguttara Nikaya. Rooted in interest are all things. Born of attention are all things. Arising from contact are all things. Converging on feelings are all things. Headed by concentration are all things. Dominated by mindfulness are all things. Surmounted by wisdom are all things. Yielding deliverance as their essence are all things. Merging in the deathless are all things. Terminating in Nibbana are all things. And lastly, uh, this is from the Anguttara Book of the Eights, similar uh, in the Book of the Nines as well, in other places. Mindfulness of death, monks, if cultivated and practiced frequently, brings great fruit, great benefit. It merges in the deathless, ends in the deathless. So those uh, passages uh, also uh, have a similar flavor. Uh, the one in the middle, from the Book of the Tens, I was quoting that uh, during the... Um, uh, the first part of the uh, community retreat when we were uh, in the morning reflections in the temple and uh, this is a, a, a kind of progressive teaching as, as a sort of alternative to dependent origination as we know it and the Buddha is talking about how the um, uh, say the, the f process of perception and feeling arises and then also how that leads to uh, to deliverance so uh, the image that comes to mind is that of a tree. So rooted in interest, chanda is the uh, uh, the root. So the roots of the tree are, are um, chanda, interest. Then arising from the ground, where the trunk emerges from the ground, born of attention. So what you're interested in, you pay attention to. And then that attention, like the trunk of the tree, then um, uh, is a contact. So what you pay uh, attention to, then that conditions sense contact, the, the, like the trunk of the tree, so it's roots and then arising from the ground and the trunk. And then uh, here it has converging on feelings are all things. That can also be interpreted as diverging into feelings, so it's like a meeting point of, of um, contact uh, with, um, with feeling, so diverging into feelings, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. So then the trunk of the tree diverges into branches. Then you have um, then three related factors, uh, headed by concentration, so the, the branches spreading out around the tree. Uh, so the, the, um, uh, the, so the big branches headed by concentration, um, 
smaller branches dominated by mindfulness and the little twigs finally reaching the limit of the tree surmounted by wisdom are all things yielding deliverance as the essence are all things so the on the uh, the the uh, the branches and twigs or the um, uh, leaves and uh, fruits and such like then merging in the uh, in the deathless are all things and so that is the um, uh, say the atmosphere around the tree and this is just a, a random image it's not the sort of fixed um, canonical interpretation but just the way of, sort of bringing these different things together in the mind so you can say the uh, the atmosphere around the tree merging with the deathless that the the, uh, the leaves on the end of the branches meet with the the, the uh, space and the, um, the deathless element and then terminating in nibbana which is the peace of the of mind of the observer who's looking at the tree <laughs> so that's just one way of picturing it you can create your own little diagram or your own uh, image if you like but uh, the significant thing here is that image of merging in the deathless also I thought I'd share with you um, I was mentioning that uh, about inclining inclining to Nibbana so a particular sutta um, where you can find that uh, in the um, connected discourses about the five faculties which is section 48 in the uh, um, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya and it's sutta number 71 and the Buddha says just as the river Ganges slants slopes and inclines towards the east so too, a bhikkhu who cultivates the five faculties, which is faith, uh, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, uh, one who cultivates the five faculties, uh, slopes, slants, and inclines towards Nibbāna. So that was the particular sutta. So that's Sutta 71 in the Sangyutta Nikāya, uh, section 48. So what might be meant by merging in the deathless? Or, quote, the deathless as their ground, destination and final goal. In the Vedas, the Hindu scriptures, the image of the self, Atman, reuniting with the Godhead, Brahman, is a common characterization of the spiritual path. Many other expressions of spiritual knowledge also employ the language of, quote, becoming one with everything, unquote, interrelatedness, merging with the universe, or the dewdrop slips into the shining sea, etc. And such language plainly endeavors to represent a gravitation of the heart towards truth, an aspiration that is intuitive to the human condition. So I thought I'd share a few of those with you. The, uh, the phrase, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea, is the closing words of the light of Asia which is a, uh, an epic poem written by Sir Edwin Arnold in the 19th century. He was the editor of the Daily Telegraph, so he was a very um, much a, a sort of a, a, a person in the middle of society and a knight of the realm. This is uh, actually a, a um, German publishing. This is Trubner. Um, um, uh, Keegan Paul Trench and Trubner. Although maybe not German, but uh, German involvement. Uh, published in this was this particular edition was published in 1895. Um, so somebody gave this to Lumpur. I, I inherited it when he uh, uh, he left Amravati. So the last words of the Light of Asia, which is the story of the life of the Buddha, it's a very 
it's done in a very sort of high poetic language. So it's so we sort of go into Victorian hyperbolic mode here. Ah, blessed Lord, O oh, high deliverer, forgive this feeble script which doth thee wrong. You follow that? No? Okay. <laughs> I'll translate it later. So. Ah, blessed Lord, O oh, high deliverer, forgive this feeble script which doth thee wrong, measuring with little wit thy lofty love. Ah, lover, brother, guide, lamp of the law, I take my refuge in thy name and thee. I take my refuge in thy law of good. I take my refuge in the order, Om. The dew is on the lotus, rise, great sun, and lift my leaf and mix me with the wave. Om Mani Padme Hung, the sunrise comes, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea. And that's the end of the poem, the end. So, uh, the, uh, this is sort of describing the Parinibbana, and this is how in the fullness of the times it fell, the Buddha died, the great Tathagato, even as a man amongst men fulfilling all, and how a thousand thousand lakhs since then have trod the path which leads whither he went, unto Nirvana, where the silence lives. So it's uh, the, um, the image of the dewdrop, like that. Uh, so the the person it's the, the 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 poem is written in the voice of a devotee, which Sir Edwin got into trouble with, because what do you mean being so excited about this Buddha chap? <laughs> you know, you're the editor of the Telegraph. You can't be so sort of enthusiastic. He put his uh, he very much put it into the voice of a of a devoted disciple of the Buddha. And um, so he says. So at the end of the poem, he's sort of asking for forgiveness from the Buddha for being so feeble, being so incompetent in putting the, the words of the Buddha and representing his greatness, his goodness, his love in this mere feeble effort at, at representation in this, these, uh, in this poem. Measuring with little wit thy lofty love, so falling short, not being good enough to represent the great uh, noble qualities of the Buddha. And then taking refuge in, um, in the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha, and then this um, this image of uh, a, uh, a leaf being carried down the river, uh, and then the river merging with the sea. Um, the dew is on the lotus, so that the um, uh, the lotus being the the uh, say symbol of enlightenment, and the dew being the the human life, like a dewdrop, like a little bubble of water on the on the lotus. Rise, great sun, and uh, the Buddha was known as Aditya Bandhu, the, the kinsman of the sun, so the, the, it was a part of the imagery and way of naming, uh, describing the Buddha was as a, a kinsman of the sun or a uh, uh, offspring of the sun. Lift my leaf and mix me with the wave, so carrying this leaf along the river uh, down to the sea to, to, uh, so that the, uh, the dewdrop that was on the, uh, on, the, on the lotus is carried off on the on a, a leaf down the river, and then the, 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 the river emerges with the sea. Om Mani Padme Hung, the sunrise comes, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea, so that the, the self, the individual, uh, uh, dissolves into the shining sea. This is also, interestingly enough, um, that th uh, third to last line, and lift my leaf and mix me with the wave, that is also was co-opted by James Joyce in Finnegan's Wake, at the... Um, 
so-called end of the book. The book doesn't really end, it just keeps going around and around. The end of the book joins with the beginning of the book. But on the last page, it uses that same image of the, the river uh, merging with the sea. Away, alone, alas, a loved, along the. It's one of the only books that ends in the word the and has no full stop at the end. And then the first word is river run, past even Adams from Swerve of Shore to Bend of Bay to lead us by a commodious vicus of recirculation by Huth Castle and Environs. I think. Kandasaro, is that? <laughs> Irish consultant? Somewhere like that. Something like that. <laughs> so, but the, that image of the, the river merging with the sea being the, the, uh, the kind of uh, image that is represented in that merging with the deathless. And to stay with, uh, with uh, hyperbolic Victorian poetry, <laughs> here is... John, uh, here is um, the words of Shelley, Percy Shelley, writing about the death of his friend John Keats. And this is, uh, again, like Light of Asia, uh, this, this poem is called Adonais. Um, it was a favorite of Lumpur Tomatoes. He, when he was in Thailand, um, life at Wapapong, as people might have, have heard, can be extremely boring it was deliberately boring <laughs> it's a very plain very very simple plain environment and so um one of the ways that Lumpur Sumato um uh, exercised his his uh, intellectual faculties was he would learn uh, to recite victorian poetry <laughs> so um his sister uh, in the, in the US would send him various books of swinburne and shelley and such like so he would um learn particular uh, certain poems and recite them to himself just to have a bit of a contrast to life in Wapapong so he says so this is uh, uh, written by Shelley after the death of his friend John Keats who died they well they all died quite young that whole Byron Shelley and Keats uh, those poets all uh, passed away at an early age so this is uh, Shelley writing about uh, Keats and again it's in a bit Apologize for those for whom those for whom English is not your first language. And even if English is your first language, it might be a little hard to follow, but you get the the feeling of it. Peace, peace, he is not dead. He doth not sleep. He hath awakened from the dream of life. Tis we who lost who lost in stormy visions keep with phantoms and unprofitable strife. And in mad trance strike with our spirit's knife invulnerable nothings we decay like corpses in a charnel fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay so <clears throat> we who lost in so he's saying that uh, that his that keats has sort of become uh, He's ascended to the to unity with the universe, and it's us humans, us sort of grubby living beings, that we're we're the ones in trouble. He hath awakened from the dream of life. Tis we, us lot, who lost in stormy visions, keep with phantoms, fear, hatred, delusion, greed, desire, aversion. <clears throat> Tis we who lost in stormy visions, keep with phantoms and unprofitable strife, and in mad trance. 
greed, hatred, and delusion, strike with our spirit's knife invulnerable nothings. So we chase after that which is uh, not gettable. We run away from that which is not dangerous and have opinions about everything else. So his poetic imagery is striking with our spirit's knife invulnerable nothings. So trying to stab a shadow with a knife. We decay, these human bodies, like corpses in a charnel, like dead bodies in a charnel house. Fear and grief convulse us and consume us day by day, and cold hopes swarm like worms within our living clay. So it's deliberately depressing, and very effectively so. Hope, cold hopes, like our frustrations, our aversions, our wishes, swarm like worms within our living clay, within our, within our body, within our mind. So... It's deliberately grim, in contrast to his uh, uh, Keats. But the next, and the next verse is the one that made me think to quote this in particular. He is made one with nature. There is heard his voice in all her music. From the moan of thunder to the song of night's sweet bird. He is a presence to be felt and known in darkness and in light, from herb and stone. Spreading itself where'er that power may move, which has withdrawn his being to its own, which wields the world with never wearied love, sustains it from beneath and kindles it above. The one remains, the many change and pass. Heaven's light forever shines, earth's shadows fly. Life, like a dome of many colored glass, stains the white radiance of eternity until death tramples it to fragments. Die! If thou wouldst be with that which thou dost seek, follow where all is fled, roams azure sky, flowers, ruins, statues, music, words are weak, the glory they transfuse with fitting truth to speak. That light whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not, that sustaining love, which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea, burns bright or dim, as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst, now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. So I might take the rest of the reading to interpret that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's Adonais by uh, Percy Part of it is just, just a few verses. It's much, much longer than that. But this imagery of um, the, uh, uh, as he said, he has made one with nature. That uh, the idea just that he's died, he's been absorbed into the, the, the natural order. And his, his voice, the voice of Keats, is heard in all her music. So hearing the voice of his friend in thunder, in birdsong, uh, he is a presence to be felt and known in darkness, in light, in, from herb and stone. So, uh, and there are some very beautiful words in here. I, I love that line, that, that light whose smile kindles the universe. That beauty in which all things work and move, and so on. So you can look that up in, uh, if you wish to follow that up. But the, uh, that imagery of, of um, uh, the individual being absorbed into the, the, um, uh, the one, uh, or the the universe is uh, uh, say the kind of a striking um, 
and repetitive theme. And so you have the this kind of imagery of um, the things like interrelatedness, um, becoming one with everything. We deliberately didn't use the uh, interbeing mm-hmm. <laughs> here because we thought that would be a politically um, charged. Since Thich Nhat, we, we're writing this in California, and Thich Nhat Hanh is super popular there, so we thought, well, if we if we put that in, they're going to get how dare you insult the master? Because interbeing is like a sort of super central theme of, uh, of Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching, and also um, it's very very kind of popular philosophy. And also you have um, very very commonly used images like Indra's net, um, which comes from a Mahayana teaching where all beings are like the jewels of uh, uh, this infinite net uh, woven by the, the deity Indra, and it's in, uh, the, all the crossing points of the, 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 the strings of the net, uh, there's a jewel, and each jewel is a living being, but all, all living beings are connected with all other living beings in Indra's net of kind of interrelatedness. So those kind of images are extremely popular and, and definitely have their, their place in our group psyche. So uh, uh, this particular section of the of the book was um, uh, was uh, thought to be uh, important to to explore that and say well how how much does that actually mesh with uh, the Buddha's teaching or how does it how does it differ because you have these people sort of speaking um, in the Buddha's voice like uh, Sir Edwin Arnold in the Light of Asia and um, notable Buddhist teachers using this kind of imagery. But it's also, and then also these kind of phrases like merging with the deathless um, and so forth in the Pali Canon. But um, there also you have the, the, uh, um, the say, the influence of the, uh, this kind of romantic tradition like you have with Shelley and, um, and uh, those kind of uh, uh, becoming one with everything, that imagery that it was very, very common in that sort of, uh, not just through Victorian uh, Victorian poetry, but through that the uh, what's called the Enlightenment with a uh, a small e, and then with um, the Romanticism through the nineteenth century and, and into the current age, the sort of uh, all the counterculture and sort of hippie movement and the um, um, that kind of influence of, of Hindu uh, culture on the on the West. That these are very very strong and repetitive themes. So it was thought to, to good. Uh, it was a good thing, a useful thing to explore those here. So, as it said, the dewdrop slips into the shining sea, etc. And such language plainly endeavours to represent a gravitation of the heart towards truth, an aspiration that is intuitive to the human condition. Thus, it would be easy to read the statements on merging as a similar kind of spiritual return or union. However, the Buddha expended considerable effort to counteract this model and very carefully pointed out in numerous teachings that all these types of expression are subtly rooted in wrong view. For example, and this comes from the Invitation to the Brahma, this is um, a middle-length discourses, Sutra number 49. Having directly known that which is not commensurate with the allness of all, I did not claim to be all, I did not claim to be in all, I did not claim to be apart from all. I did not claim all to be mine. I did not firm. I did not affirm all. And the Pali for all is sabba. Or in the first discourse of the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses, 
the, uh, the reading from, well, both of these we read from a few times. And this is the Buddha um, talking about the wrong view of the same kind of um, uh, universal approach. They perceive all as all. Having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all. They conceive themselves in all. They conceive themselves apart from or coming from all. They conceive all to be theirs. They delight in all. Why is that? Because they've not fully understood it, I say. This latter passage expresses some of the kinds of view that he criticized as eternalist, and thus one of the extremes to be avoided. The Buddha insistently spoke of the middle way as the path to freedom and peace. Therefore, it's most helpful to keep returning to that principle as the primal guide. Just as in a tightrope walk, there is both the constant danger of tilting too far, to the left or to the right, and the need for a relaxed yet alert attention to minor fluctuations of balance. So before going on and reading a little bit more on that, any questions or clarifications? In the Heart Sutra, Arjun, specifically states that uh, non-attainment, so uh, no path, no wisdom, no non-wisdom, having realised non-attainment, Parashampara-meter is realised, has cut through the thought of anything, absolutely anything being it. So it's more towards the unborn. So if we're thinking of, say, unborn, nothing can be added. You can't merge with it, you can't bond with it because it isn't born. That, that, that's, the, that's my sort of thing, that's the way I sort of reflect on it as mm -hmm. nothing can be put with it because it's there, it's, but it's not born, you know, it's not even born. It's before that. It, you know, when, when you think you want to be an Arahant, you want to be enlightened, it's before that. Because any movement towards it is a birth, isn't it? It must be a birth. It must be an attachment of some kind. Well, that's what it is saying, is that yeah. the, the, the mind um, is taking hold of these things in terms of self-view. Yeah. And that the, the, the Buddha is working really hard and repeatedly to, to deconstruct that self-view. That's why the, the, same, the similar teachings about where does, it, where does an enlightened being go after the death of the body? Yeah. That, uh, and he says, reappears doesn't apply, and does not reappear does not apply. And come to that in a later chapter. Because the, the question, what, where does an enlightened being go when they die? It's like that's based on, on personality view, on Sakaya Ditti, that they are this individual who has this body, who has this life, that were born and they have just died. And that that's it's all built on, on, on self-view. So it's interesting, there's never a place in the Pali Canon where a stream-enterer, or with anyone with, with more uh, realization, ever asks that, that question of the Buddha. It's only ever uh, worldlings or people who, are, who haven't entered the stream who say, you know, where is it that uh, an enlightened being goes to when they pass away? So that having broken through Sakaya Ditti, self-view, having, having let, uh, let that go, that question doesn't formulate in that, in that way because it's not the, the mind is letting go or stop the um, say framing of experience in terms of time and individuality and, and location. There's some puzzled looking faces around. Are we are we following? Got enough of that? Yeah. Um, I just, yes. Um, 
Oh, there's another Irish consultant here. Yeah, so I, I read forgive me if I misquoted his Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> <laughs> I have read it. Yeah, I haven't read any of his work. So. Yes, your question. Um, yeah, I was just reading today, actually. Krish Murthy in his journal has a line, um, uh, what, you're, what, you're, what you are matters enormously, for you are the world, and the world is you. And that would be very much an example of this sort of eternalist view, would it? It's what you are matters enormously, for you are the world, and the world is you. And he says, this is compassion. Uh, it would, it, yeah, it would be. Um, you, I need to see the the context of it as well, because you can you can also say, uh, you know, we, we just uh, exactly how he's meaning it. But it sounds very much like that, like uh, the. Uh, but since it's Krishnamurti speaking, it might be coming from a more Different spacious way. perspective. Yeah. He's saying negate negate all that is not love. Then what is is compassion? What you are matters enormously. For you are the world, and the world is you. This is compassion. Yeah, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky area because uh, the words can be used in different ways. So, like, uh, um, so there's a, a, a famous, much quoted verse of uh, a master Shunwa where he says, um, "Truly recognize your own faults. Do not criticize the faults of others. And others' faults are just your own. Being one with everyone is called the great compassion." So he uses the phrase "being one with everyone," and so um, <clears throat> you say, "Oh, well, is that an eternalist view?" <laughs> but uh, if you take it in the context, is is uh, it's you say, "Well, it's it's more uh, <clears throat> talking about seeing everyone in an in, in an even way with freedom of bias." Or like Ajahn Chah saying, "You know, really, all people are just the same. You've met one person, you've met them all, really." <laughs> <laughs> Seen one human, you've seen them all, seen them all, you know, and it's the kind of they they make those kind of statements to to sort of stop your mind. And go, oh, <laughs> seen one human, seen them all, to help kind of break up that self view. So the, those kind of statements is it's important to say, well, where's that coming from? And not sometimes we can see a key word, and you say, oh, that's eternalist, or well, there's a nihilist. Look, look, yeah. And we're ready to jump on a statement and judge it, but it, uh, often it, you need to, to read the whole passage or listen carefully, and then and then say, well, what's what's the intention behind that? Well, yeah, they're using those words, but is, is that the meaning? Am I, am I just reacting to a particular usage of a of a word? And um, and so it uh, it's it's useful to 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 pick it up and re- and reflect in that way. Good. That's awesome. So Carry on, wondering, yeah. um, like that principle of Indra's dual net, like on a conventional level, I wonder if that sort of has some has has something in it. This sort of sense of everybody being very connected, like on a on a sort of conventional level, not not maybe talking about ultimate ultimate reality, but just the nature of the way that beings are very closely connected and related to each other. I just wonder what you what you think about. Well, there's a way that it it does make sense. You I mean you can say you know everything, mental and physical, is all part of the same natural order. We're all essentially made of the same stuff, both physically, you know, mind. Your you know your mind can't be made of a sort of different stuff than mine. Your body, you know, and my body, they they can't be different. So that 
there's a um, in a way it's it's it accurately reflects that unifying principle that you know, all things are part of nature and and uh, therefore there's an interrelationship between all uh, aspects of the conditioned realm you know all all all, all things there's a relatedness there but the um uh that the you know say using the buddha's teaching as a as a lens with which to to look at that and how that um that kind of uh, relatedness and the commonality that all things share how that can be appreciated to lead towards liberation so what you have in the in the buddha's teaching is like his right there in the in the second discourse in the Anatalakana Sutta, it's like uh, rather than saying uh, we are all one, he says um, you know form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, like the experiential world, uh, is it is it changing? Is it satisfactory? Is it who and what you are? And and so it's a it's a taking those common qualities, uh, anicca dukkha anatta. So rather than saying yeah, we are all one, it's saying that if you look at all things, they all share these same qualities. They're unified in, in that. And uh, and so not just taking that as an idea, but say, okay, that if that's understood, that it, these are changing, and they, none of, no thing that's experienced in the terms of the physical world or the mental world can possibly satisfy, is it is it reasonable, is it appropriate to say of that, um, if, it's un, if it's unsatisfactory and it's imp, unstable and uncertain, this is this is myself. This is what I am. This is uh, this is uh, this is mine, and using that as a way of approaching, saying no, it's not. So it's a he's using that commonality of experience, that unifying quality, rather than um, uh, say as a, a sort of philosophical idea like we are all one, but rather um, <clears throat> helping the the mind to see where it's. Attachments have formed to create that uh, that sense of of uh, dukkha or dislocation, and to help the mind to to let go of that. That makes sense. Yes, that's great. Yeah. It, it's because uh, you can say we are all one, but then that the, and the and the and say yeah we're all uh, and that's a, a beautiful idea and there's and you can say it's got a lot of validity to it, but it doesn't point to what makes my me feel like I'm not one with you, <laughs> or that uh, you know, my my perceptions are are, uh, are real and solid. You know, the things that I like and want are, are good, and the things I dislike and don't want are bad. You know? So that uh, the Buddha's approach is very, very deliberately um, uh, liberate is is guided towards liberation, towards changing your heart essentially to. To uh, and not just trying to create a description of how it all works, but rather what you do <laughs> to to bring this life into into harmony and to end dukkha. So to continue, this latter passage expresses some of the kinds of view that he criticised as eternalist, and thus one of the extremes to be avoided. The Buddha insistently spoke of the middle way as the path to freedom and peace. Therefore, it's most helpful to keep returning to that principle 
as the primal guide. Just as in a tightrope walk, there is both the constant danger of tilting too far to the left or to the right, and the need for a relaxed yet alert attention to minor fluctuations of balance. So I think that's the, the tightrope walker is the perfect image there. Any of you have ever seen the documentary Man on Wire? That's a, this is a, a perfect example of the middle way. <laughs> it is a pronounced human tendency to lean towards either eternalism or nihilism, pushing ahead or holding back. The Buddha's teaching is unsurpassed in both analyzing and providing genuine means for counteracting such tendencies. Perhaps the clearest expression of this problem and its antidote that has come down to us in the suttas is found at uh, Itivutaka Sutta number 49 that I quoted in chapter 5. It's also touched on in Udana chapter 3, which has been quoted previously, and also significantly um, in that uh, Sangyuta Nikaya, the, the discourse to Ch uh, Kachana Gota, in, it was in chapter 5. So it's referring to previously quoted suttas. When one reflects on the language the Buddha uses to express this principle of merging with the deathless, and meshes it with his statements about the All, capital A, one can see that the image of the relationship of habitual sense perceptions, the All, to the deathless, is more that of coming out of a dream and merging with waking reality, recognizing the coil of rope after fearing the snake in the grass, quote-unquote rather than a river merging with a sea of identical substance. So I'll read that again. So, there. so <clears throat> the image of the relationship of habitual sense perceptions, the all, to the deathless, is more that of coming out of a dream and merging with waking reality, rather than a river merging with a sea of identical substance. So I pondered carefully. Um, also that uh, in the background of this part of the chapter there was uh, the voice of Ajahn Tanisaro who took great exception to the sort of merging with the deathless um, and uh, all things, and all expressions like all things come from the, arise from the unconditioned and emerge into the unconditioned that some teachers have used in the past. And he said, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. And um, so we had some very helpful discussions with him and also looking at the, the, the exact Pali uh, rendition of uh, these words. Um, and he's done a whole thesis, I think a whole book on uh, uh, Romanticism and, uh, and Buddhism and the effect in the West of the Romantic movement, people like Thoreau and uh, the Transcendentalists and uh, William James and so forth, um, uh, and you know, Romanticism uh, and these kind of ideas on the way that Buddhism has been represented and practiced in the, the West. So, uh, if you're interested, uh, um, uh, we got uh, we have copies of that that have, have uh, reached us a, a few months ago, and um, so it was a very very useful dialogue with him about this and um, and uh, clarifying what's there in the teachings and also the the um, uh, a way of say representing well what what are the teachings saying and and how does it work so. I went uh, back and forth a few times with this particular chapter, finding a wording that um, that worked, and uh, so this was um, what we ended up with was, was uh, agreeable to Ajahn uh, Pasno and myself, and also Ajahn Tanisaro. Was this image of coming out of a of a dream and merging with waking reality? 
If instead we understand the language in this way, quote unquote, all dreams merge with waking reality, have waking reality as their ground, reach to the waking state and have that as their end. The imagery still holds, but we are respecting the utterly transcendent nature of the deathless, just as the waking state utterly transcends the world of dream. So I think that echoes Nevin's point. Would you say, Nevin? I think so. It's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, I often think of, say, when I'm, I'm dealing with a rose, the rose is there, the image is there, but you couldn't say that the scent was connected to the rose. So you can realise the scent, but you can't realise it without the rose. You know, it's, they're, they're, they're one, but they don't look, you, you can't see them as one. It's, it's almost like... Um, the, the nirvana comes out, you, you realise the teachings and you do the path, but there's, there's the fruition, the scent comes out of that, that you can't really see. That's what you know. Thank you. So to continue. Now it could also be contended that these passages, as quoted here, are not, are not perfect renderings. For example, that a better translation of Amatogada would be, quote, gains a footing in the deathless, unquote. And that, this and that this discussion of merging is thus all beside the point. So that was another uh, issue of Ajahn Tisro saying, well, it's, it's all beside the point because it doesn't mean merging. It means gains a footing. <clears throat> However, the issue at hand is that of misunderstanding and the human habit of misreading things according to one's biases, often either eternalist or annihilationist. The fact is that the English phrases merging with or plunging into, etc., have been frequently used by a variety of translators and have equally regularly been used to back up biased views of various kinds. Thus it remains useful to contemplate these teachings as they have been transmitted to us, measuring them against known truths and to find the middle way through our own, through our own reflection. So again, I, I chose my words carefully, as carefully as possible, because even though you can say, well, it doesn't really mean that, and I felt the point is, yeah, but in countless uh, uh, rep uh, uh, representations of the teaching and uh, spiritual um, uh, writings of various kinds, that sort of phraseology has been used. So I felt it was useful to, uh, to address that and to um, uh, say, in a, way, in a sense, respect the fact that yeah, the, the Buddha might not have been meaning that, but he has been represented as having spoken in that way. And so it's to, to uh, in a sense, clarify what, was, uh, what has been um, misunderstood in the past. Speaking of the, the imagery of coming out of a dream, there's also a very uh, interesting little passage um, that uh, it was say, uh, something said by Sri Ramana Maharshi, and this is about um, the Bodhisattva principle, interestingly enough. So this is uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi. I'm not sure uh, which collection of teachings of his this comes from, but uh, I have it noted down. People often say that a liberated master should go out and preach his message to the people. How can anyone be a master, they argue, as long as there is misery by his side? This is true. But who is a liberated master? 
Does he see misery behind, beside him? They want to determine the state of a master without realizing the state themselves. From the standpoint of the master, their contention amounts to this. A man dreams a dream in which he finds several people. On waking up, he asks, have the dream people also woken up? How ridiculous. In the same way, a good man says, it doesn't matter if I never get liberation, or let me be the last man to get it so that I may help all others to be liberated before I am. Wonderful. Imagine a dreamer saying, may all these dream people wake up before I do. <laughs> the dreamer is no more absurd than this amiable philosopher. So, I'm very fond of that particular passage. That, uh, may all these dream people wake up before I do. So any particular thoughts or, or questions, uh, further reflections on that? I'm not, in, in that, that passage, is not trying to sort of put down or to be kind of nihilist um, and people find the, the language of being one with everything or Indra's net and all and interconnectedness, interrelatedness, people find that very inspiring and gladdening. So it, the point of this is not to just deflate people and make people depressed. And, oh, I quite like being one with everything. <laughs> Sorry, man. <Yeah. laughs> I was enjoying that. You know. So it's not just to, to uh, deflate, but uh, rather it's, to, it's the way that self-view creeps into even very high-minded uh, and sort of transcendent teachings. So that then that... Uh, say in Indra's net, the, the, the idea of being uh, that we're all connected, but then the the sense of you know I'm connected with all of you, it can still be that the I am and the you is still kind of impacted and and uh, and being formed, and so the uh, even though the Buddha uh, as has been mentioned a few times, he was often uh, misregarded uh, or. Uh, falsely, uh, say, accused of or, or, or named as a nihilist, one who, who has uh, got a nihilistic, negative, destructive approach, that uh, he was quite prepared to be misunderstood. He, he knew that people would see him in that way and he had to, to sort of, uh, explain uh, the, the teaching many, many times in this respect. But he... Uh, Rather than using this sort of eternalist, universalist language, he was uh, he was prepared to be misunderstood, or prepared to to uh, because of the need to be uh, accurate. And so that when, uh, particularly in his terms of his teachings on on anatta, and as uh, as it says uh, in that um, passage I was quoting earlier, I've been vainly, baselessly misunderstood as one who uh, teaches the annihilation. I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misrepresented by some summoners and Brahmins thus. The summoner Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not one who leads astray, and I do not proclaim this, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misinterpreted. Both formally and now what I teach is Dukkha and the cessation of Dukkha. <laughs> he so resolutely says, "No, not quite. No, not that." And <clears throat> so much of it is just 
drawing the the teaching out of the context of self-view. Like, I want to get enlightened. I want to help all beings. You know, I am one with it. I want. I am one with everyone. <laughs> I'm going to merge with the deathless. You say, well, yes and no. You know, <laughs> when the and so that that uh, I felt that that image of the um, uh, the waking state. I mean, it's not perfect. All analogies are imperfect uh, and they're impartial. But I felt that was as, as close as one could get and use the phraseology of the teaching would also sort of represent um, that uh, the, the the truth of it uh, the uh, and being uh, re- uh, sort of uh, respectful of the Buddha's teaching and so rep- and not misrepresenting it but using a, an image that we can all relate to that waking up and going oh that was just a dream that the <clears throat> and so that that um, uh, but also how the 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 waking state and its activities are, are of a whole different order, a whole different um, dimension, if you like, than than the, the people and beings and activities in a dream. So it's not perfect. Obviously, the 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 formless, unborn, timeless quality of the deathless, the un, unconditioned, unborn is uh, uh, is not really representable. <laughs> In a, in an image, but I felt that was as uh, uh, as uh, sort of tangible in a, as an exa- as an example as as one could uh, one could make. At least that was the best I could come up with. Ajahn Jitapala, you're on the brink of saying something. I can feel it. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> There's a certain expression that crosses your face. Um, I don't quite know how to put it, but I try. Um, I think one one of the reasons for for the kind of unsatisfactoriness of you know, there is nothing you know, which is also not true. But there is no thing. There is no thing. But what touches what it touches into is is the fear of um, you know, there is no social connection. We miss our friends. I'm not going to go to Nibbana if I can't take my dog. Yeah, no, no, I, don't mean, I don't mean it like this, but uh, in, in terms of, of the past, you know, the, the conventional and the, the absolute, um, in a way, uh, the Buddha teaches Sila, and the Buddha teaches the um, for. Um, And so they are about relating mm-hmm. and also within the order, so he, he speaks about uh, that um, we help each other, like, I don't know exactly whether the translation is merges, but he speaks like, like milk and water yes. uh, flow together. So Blending together like milk and water. Right. Seeing each other with kindly eyes, and so so um, these images are there for a certain reason, and so if if I would kind of um, just see the other, oh, there's nobody, you know, there's no, so why help, why helping mm-hmm. anybody, or why working together, mm-hmm. uh, or in, in the extreme in, in the Japanese war with Korea, that the, the Japanese. Uh, were told the Buddhist 
you know, were told they can kill the Koreans because uh, they just liberate them from their suffering. You know, they don't kill anybody because there's nobody. And so when, when mm -hmm. that gets confused, mm -hmm. that is not wholesome. So I think uh, we have to be careful how we present that or where we present that. Yeah, it's, it's true. I, I feel that um, that uh, the, uh, on that, that point, I think it's probably the outcome of 500 years of people uh, practicing with more of that um, uh, internal focus, as it were. That, that it drifted more as, it, as that got used um, or ab uh, misused and uh, uh, misunderstood, that um, that probably was one of the reasons that the Mahayana movement began and had a whole social element like we were talking about this morning, you and I. And that uh, one of the reasons seems to have been that um, there was uh, an outcome of sort of 500 years of, of the teaching being passed on with, with much more of a you know, work on yourself, work on yourself, work on yourself as being part of it and uh, that being sort of m mistaken Sort of mishyphen taken, and um, uh, then the, there was this sort of movement. I said, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute." <laughs> and then the other elements, the Brahmaviharas, and that the kind of uh, uh, caring aspect got amplified because of my uh, my feeling, my understanding, and also my my senses. Yeah, well, that would make sense if that was getting lost with an over uh, an overemphasis on. On uh, the internal of an individual, the, uh, that they uh, they have sort of mistaken the 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 training. I'm not quite as extreme as in that misrepresentation of the teaching with the Japanese and the, uh, that kind of totally deluded view that was uh, was there from uh, uh, was uh, bushido, the way of the sword that uh, evolved out of that. But um, I think that that's the, what was a, a kind of cause of the, that Mahayana populist and, and very much a, a sort of looking outwards and looking towards the, the caring for other beings was um, was was uh, fueled by that. But uh, <clears throat> it's a um, I, you know, I I I can't be f sure myself. And you know, the histories vary on that a little bit. But it seems to be. I mean, it makes sense that that. That sort of the, the the human feeling for for each other sort of rose up and said, "Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are we doing here? <laughs> Things are getting out of balance." And so then, it, ways of expressing that greater sense of active engagement—it's there in the in the original teachings. Uh, and uh, the Buddha speaks about you know how to help yourself, how to help others, um, and the way that you help others most effectively is to help yourself. And then also he goes on to say, "And the way and how do you help?" How do you help others by helping yourself? Is by practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, and then, but then he also said, but then by helping others, you also help yourself too, and that, uh, and how do you help by helping others? How do you help yourself by practicing nonviolence, sympathy, compassion, you know, kindness, you know, and you know, gentleness, and so on? That's in the Acrobats Sutta. Yeah. I thought I also might share another couple of little quotations since I got my little. Book of quotations here. There was some uh, talk. We were talking about art, I think, the other day. Is that correct? Yes. And um, 
Epiphany. And so I was uh, kind of quoting a, a couple of passages that I remembered from here that was in, uh, in the back of my memory. So this first one is from Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk, a Christian monk, uh, who was very active. He was a very... Talk, uh, not to, he, he was a Trappist who wrote a lot, so he was a very wordy Trappist. <laughs> they take a bow of, of silence, but he was one of the most chatty Trappists ever. But most of it went into that. He's written books and books and books of stuff. His, collect, his poetry collection is like about this thick. It's huge. But anyway, one of the things that he wrote uh, was this. The living law that rules the universe is nothing but the secret gravitation that draws all things to God as to their center. Since all true art lays bare the action of this same law in the depths of our own nature, it makes us alive to the tremendous mystery of being, in which we ourselves, together with all other living and existing things, come forth from the depths of God and return again to him. So you can change God there for Dhamma and it, so... Uh, the living law that rules the universe is nothing but the secret gravitation that draws all things to Dhamma as to their center. So that was... Um, then he also, this is Thomas Merton, uh, speaking about chanting and the silence. The monastic life is a life wholly centered upon this tremendous existential silence of God. Which nobody, has been ever, which nobody has ever been able to explain, and which is, nevertheless, the heart of all that is real. Other lives are dedicated to partial ends, to ends that can be verified and measured in terms of language, recorded somehow, if not in physical sound, at least in a thought that sounds in the mind, and is ready to reproduce it itself and to communicate its echoes to other men. The monastic life is not dedicated to a sounding communication among men. It lives by a soundless communication in mystery between man and God, between man and his brother, and between man and all created things. The value of the monk's public prayer, the chanting, is therefore not drawn so much from its sound as from the deep silence of God which enters into that sound and gives it actuality, value, meaning. The beauty of Gregorian chant, and that which distinguishes it from every, every other kind of music, lies in the fact that its measured sound, in itself beautiful, tends to lead the soul, by its beauty, into the infinitely more beautiful silence of God. Chant that does not have this effect, no matter how great its technical perfection, is practically without value. It is empty of the silence of wisdom, which is its substance and its life. And um, there's a couple of passages from Joseph Campbell, first of all talking about God imagery, which I thought was appropriate as a counterpoint to the, the uh, theistic language. So this is uh, Joseph Campbell, who's a very gifted American thinker, writer, um, philosopher. Now this ultimate ground of all being can be experienced in two senses one as with form and the other as without and beyond form. When you experience your God as with form, 
There is your envisioning mind, and there is the God. There is a subject, and there is an object. But the ultimate mystical goal is to be unified with one's God. With that, duality is transcended and forms disappear. There's nobody there, no God, no you. Your mind, going past all concepts, has dissolved in identification with the ground of your own being. Because that to which the metaphorical image of your God refers is the ultimate mystery of your own being, which is the mystery of, of the being of the world as well. And so, this is it. That's one of the most magnificent pieces of writing, in my humble opinion. It's one of the most magnificent pieces of wisdom that ink can put on paper. And then speaking about art again, this is Joseph Campbell once more. Behind all these manifestations is the one radiance which shines through all things. The function of art is to reveal this radiance through the created object. When you see the beautiful organization of a fortunately composed work of art, you just say, aha! Somehow it speaks to the order in your own life and leads to the realization of the very things that religions are concerned to render. These are, I feel, are very uh, helpful, beautiful ways of thinking about art and art objects and chanting, sound, and uh, the uh, the language is theistic and uh, gender loaded. <laughs> From Thomas Burton, he lives in a monastery with three hundred men, so it's uh, understandable he gets a sort of male-centered language and talking about monks and men. But uh, one can translate as you go along to uh, uh, to refer to. Um, uh, Dhamma instead of, of God and to uh, make the language a bit more universal. But in particular I feel this uh, the understanding of art and uh, how art works that uh, is very very astute in that sense of aha that the uh, rather like in that image of the um, uh, the I was talking about the progression of the Chandamula the rooted in interest are all things uh, born of attention are all things that it, emerging in the deaths are all things, terminating in Nibbana are all things. The, the termination is the, the mind of the person reading the words. <laughs> but, uh, it, uh, it's that, aha, that, uh, uh, that change of our own heart, the, the, the impact of our own mind, that, that, that change uh, and awake, aware quality, that's the, uh, the purpose of of Dhamma teaching, the purpose of, of art, and uh, the, um, the uh, that's so, you know, why we love artworks. That's why we love music and uh, the um, uh, and the way that a Dhamma teaching. And often, when when people listen to Dhamma teachings, then you say, "Well, what did the Arjun say? What did she say? <laughs> I don't know. It was great, though. I, I was there for every word. I was I was with the whole thing. But what did she say?" It was about a Nietzsche, <laughs> and there, there, there was something about Dukkha in there as well. But uh, as Ajahn Chah used to say, that if you can't remember, don't worry, because there's a tape recorder running, that, that, and it, when you need it, it'll be there. But it's just uh, yeah, it's not accessible all the time. 
So that's the end of chapter 7, the uh, attending to the deathless, and so we'll close it there for today.